0: We're going to be in Ephesians 5 this morning, so if you've got a Bible, open it up, turn over until you find Ephesians 5. Uh, I'll tell you right from the start, part of this passage deals with sexual immorality, and that can make people very uncomfortable. Uh, On the other hand, I'll also tell you this, uh, one of the biggest complaints I hear from uh, college students or older adults who grew up in the church is that uh, their church growing up never spoke about sex at all. Uh, And so today we're going to speak about it on the basis of God's Word speaks about it. I also just want to remind you that uh, this letter to the Ephesians was a letter that on being received by the Ephesians would have been read out loud to the entire church, uh, including children of every single age. Uh, So as we do this, I do assure you that we're going to do so uh, in a mature manner, not to be concerned if your children are here present, mine are too. Uh, And so keep that in mind. So then let's uh, get right to it. We're going to be reading the first seven verses of chapter 5 of the book of Ephesians. Verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. The grass withers and the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to walk in love. And that means we must understand your word to know what it means to walk in love. And what it means to follow you, to imitate you, to rest in you and all that you've accomplished for us in the gospel. So we ask that you enlighten our minds to understand your word this morning. I ask that you give me wisdom in communicating these truths to the various ages that make up this covenant community. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first word we see there is the word therefore. Therefore is tying it back to the previous section, which is tied back to the previous section before that. Uh, And it really continues this ongoing theme that we're seeing over and over again, that we are to put off the old self, and we are to put on the new self. And so we're seeing that again and again. Um, And here, right off the bat, we're being told to be imitators of God. And the reason is because we are beloved children of God. Christians, do you understand, do you know that God has adopted you, that he has made you full members in his family? Uh, we learned that, you may or may not have been here, back when we were in chapter 1, verse 5. Right at the beginning of this entire book, we learned that when it says, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And, and as most of you probably know, all of you parents certainly know this, children tend to imitate their parents. They use words and phrases that their parents use, uh, and sometimes this can give a parent great joy as you see the things come out of their mouths and the way they behave. Other times it can be looking into, like looking into one of those those mirrors that um, blow up your face and you can see every pore. Um, it can be a very very painful thing to watch as you see your own bad behavior in your children. But in this instance, when we're called to imitate our Heavenly Father, it is always a a wonderful thing. And and God here is giving us instruction as to what it might look like for us to imitate the Lord as we walk through life. He also shows us what it might not, what it does not look like. Uh, So in this passage, there are six sinful acts listed here. What Paul says are not to even be named among Christians. I want to make sure you understand that. By that, he does not mean that we we should hide these sins. He doesn't mean that we should pretend that these sins are not, don't exist among us. He means that we should go to battle with them so that they have no foothold in our lives, no foothold in the community's lives. And so don't hear this and think, okay, better hide that from him. Better hide that from my, my covenant family. I mean, don't do that. And I, and I really mean this, don't do that because if you want to fight against sin, there is, there is great wisdom in sharing this struggle. What you've got to understand is that your Christian friends, your spouse, your covenant community, are not your enemy. They are your allies in this battle. And you need allies. So let's get started. I hope you notice there's this connection between verses 1 and 2 and, and verses 3. Uh, and what we see here is that walking in love is contrasted with sexual immorality. Those aren't the things you might expect. You see, God here is defining love as the opposite of sexual immorality in this instance. And so when we participate in sexual immorality on on the basis of, well I I love him or you don't understand, I I love her, that's not love according to the Creator. That's not love according to our God. And, And yet in culture today people seek to find their identity, their actual identity in the way that they express themselves sexually, such that there is this autonomy of the body, and that can be held up as some mighty virtue to be sought after. But God, in his words, says it very different. He says that the human body belongs to him. Our bodies belong to God, um, not us. Not only because he's our creator, but, but doubly so, because he has purchased us, purchased us on the cross when Jesus sacrificed himself. So I guess we better define a few things here cautiously. Um, Sexual immorality is translated from the Greek word pornea. Uh, You can probably guess what English word comes from that. Uh, Here though this word is being used in this comprehensive sense. A wide wide range of things. It's more than adultery. It's more than just saying uh, that sex outside of marriage is, is sin. It includes other sexual acts outside of the marriage commitment. And it's it's very important that we know here that he's not saying that sex is bad, okay? Not at all. Uh, The desire you may feel in your life at various points in your life to be sexually active, that is a good thing by God's good design. However, uh, the way to enjoy that gift of our Creator is only in marriage. You see, all sexual sin corrupts the beauty and the joy that God intends to give when sexuality is, is used properly. Now, I know that in our culture, kind of the mantra that we hear is this idea that, you know, sex is no big deal. But Christian, have you ever noticed that, that in the scripture, in God's word, God never says it's just sex. It's no big deal. Instead, what do we see him say? We, we see in Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. And in Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality and purity—the two words that we have in our passage today—and again in First Thessalonians four three through five. For this is the will of God: your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality; that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. First Corinthians six eighteen calls us to flee from sexual immorality, and I could go on and on. There are many, many more, but I think you get the point that you know, one of the things you got to see here is that this struggle was a struggle for the disciples of Christ in the first century. I think we forget that sometimes. This was a, a struggle for Christians well before the internet, before tender was invented, long before uh, Louise Reard invented the bikini, long before Pincus created the birth control pill, long before Netflix and chill. Um, yet. Kevin DeYoung uh, puts our culture in perspective, this is where we live, this is the reality of it, he says, he says this, um, sexual, sexual, yeah, sexual immorality is one of our high places, that is places we go to worship. Uh, he says, if we could transport Christians from among any other century to any of today's countries in the West, I believe that would su- what, what would surprise them most is how at home Christians are with sexual impurity. It doesn't shock us, it doesn't upset us, it doesn't offend our consciences. In fact, unless it's really bad, sexual impurity seems normal, just a way of life and often downright entertaining. The, the impurity, that word that you see there in verse 3, certainly includes the idea of lust. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 5, 27-29 Uh, John preached on this at RUF recently. The Sermon on the Mount points out that what we do with our minds in regards to sexuality really matters. It really matters. Jesus says this. He says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And that doesn't mean that the next time you find yourself lusting, you need to rip your eyeball out. But it does mean that you've got to fight with that sort of intensity against these sins in our lives. And Jesus said this to people who were were lusting at a time and place where men and women were covered in huge robes. Right? And I tell you that just so you you can't blame the struggle with lust simply on the pervasiveness of flesh in our culture. You can't it's certainly going to be a difficult battle in this day in life. Uh, because in our day, the pornography is absolutely prevalent on the internet. Advertisements are actually designed on purpose. TV shows that want to get you to watch it are intended to lead our hearts into lust. That's an advertising ploy to get you to keep watching. Michael Horton wrote something quite profound about screens today. And, th- and this hurts. It will. It'll hurt me. It'll hurt you. If there was a couple engaged in sexual activity on a couch in front of you, would you pull up a seat to watch? No. That would be perverse, voyeuristic. So why is it different when people record it first and then you watch? And I say that, and I don't want to guilt you. I don't. But I do want you to to be mindful, to, to think about it, to actually evaluate how your entertainment how your relationships are in obedience and in obedience to the Lord. Now again, I, I want to emphasize that sex was designed by God as a beautiful expression of intimate love between a husband and a wife. And that's a big deal that God actually designed this. Because you know, if God wanted to, babies could grow on trees. We could have an orchard with just babies growing and we'd never know any different. We'd be like, well yeah, this is totally normal. And, and yet God in His goodness... To, to you, to mankind, ha- has made it that the process is mutually pleasurable. God is no prude. His guidelines for this gift are not a bad thing. They are good for your soul. They are good for your life. They are good for the community that you dwell in. And like every other sin we find ourselves holding on to, the grace of God will set you free in areas of sexual sin as well. We also see here, not nearly as exciting, but it's listed in the same thing here, is this idea that covetousness ought not be named among them. Covetousness is, is greed. It's the z- desire to have more, or to put it another way, it is the inability to be satisfied, uh, to be content with just the bare necessities of life. It's that always wanting more, whether it be Bill Gates' money or, or Donald Trump's power, or Taylor Swift's fame, or Kate Middleton's husband, always wanting more. Or maybe your discontentment aims a little lower. Maybe all you want is a husband, a wife. Maybe all you want is a better job. I mean, you understand this, though, it's discontentment in the, in the depths of our hearts. And Paul is saying this is idolatry because it places this allegiance. It places this, this sense of worship on, on possessions and especially on, on the obtaining of possessions that we don't currently have. And, and then this desire for something, when, when we have that, this desire takes the place of God in our life so that, so that that desire, whatever it is we're seeking after, rather than God, actually determines the choices we make in life, the things we pursue, we live for obtaining it. And God here is calling us to reject this covetousness. And then in verse 4, we, we learn here that, yes, we are to talk about sex, right? We, many don't talk about it enough, especially Christians, but as Christians, we are to talk about sex in a certain way. You know, treating it as gross or trivial or animalistic or simply failing to speak in a way that, that shows honor. That, that sort of talk, God says, is unacceptable. This is not uh, a knock against jokes. It's not. Um, It's not a knock against talking about sex. It's it's rather against crude, offensive humor. And and this includes things, uh, humor that is chauvinistic or racist or anything of of that nature. And then in verse 5, 5 probably bothers you. It bothered me. Uh, Maybe it won't bother you. It says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And I expect it bothers you because you hear that and it sounds uh, like something other than the gospel of grace that we have learned everywhere in the scriptures. It, it sounds like if you're struggling with these sins that you, know, that you can't be saved. Let me confirm for you that adherence to these rules is not the gospel. You could pursue these these rules and miss the gospel completely but there is something to be said that that seeking to obey them is is an overflow of the gospel in our lives it's kind of that it's what oozes out of us uh, increasingly because of the grace of God and the Holy Spirit that God has poured into us so this is not talking about and this is important you got to hear this this is not talking about those who are frustratedly struggling to fight these sins It's about those who won't struggle at all. Those who are unrepentant and and just don't care. You know? And and so rejoice that your heart struggles. Rejoice if you're struggling in these areas because that's that's a sign of the Spirit working in you. That's proof of this adoption by the Lord that you're struggling. It's the one who's not struggling, that's the one who needs to be concerned in this instance. But there's still the question then, why why the threat, right? It sounds manipulative to to say, you know, you're going to be denied an inheritance in the kingdom if this is true about you. I assure you, God's not being manipulative. He's he's absolutely sovereign, absolutely sovereign. And when you are absolutely sovereign, you don't need to be manipulative. What he's doing is, is he's telling them information. You know, if you rob a bank you could get killed in the process or captured and go to prison for a very long time. I'm telling you that's not, not trying to manipulate you. I just want you to know what's at stake here. And the point here is, that, is really that the fight against sexual sin in our life and covetousness in our hearts, is, it's not optional. It's what we do as disciples who have been united with Christ through faith. It's what we do. In other words, if you have no satisfaction in God and, and no desire to put these sins... Uh, Put, put off these sins, then, then maybe it's a good idea to evaluate yourself whether you are trusting in the Lord at all. Not for me to evaluate you, but for you to evaluate you. Because apathy, apathy is not a fruit of the Spirit. Our passage then ends by, by saying this. It says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. It's similar to what we read in Colossians 2.8 where it says this. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so the deception that he's talking about here is something that has been very common throughout church history, uh, sometimes called antinomianism, sometimes called easy believism. Um, and, and what he's saying here is, is that it's this idea that a, a Christian can live an absolutely unrepentant sinful life and it has no standing on them. Hearts unmoved by habitual sin. And this is important because there is a huge difference between the person who is struggling over and over and over again with lust and yet over and over and over again returns to the Lord and repents and the person who just you know pursues lust unrepentantly, unconcerned, unworried about it. There's a difference between the person who struggles with same-sex attraction and the person who pridefully marches to promote you know, a sinful pursuit of that temptation. And the deception we want to avoid is the one that says there, there is no judgment, sin doesn't matter. You know, the, the deceiver in mind here is someone who will say something like don't you know, don't you know that God is a God of love and he's not going to condemn anyone? Sounds great, doesn't it? However, in reality, the very same scriptures that tell us that God is love, that God is a God of love, the very same scriptures teach us that indeed God will judge all people, that indeed he does care about sin. If sin was no big deal, the cross would not have been necessary. And so it's graciously calling us to turn from our sin and to trust in the Lord. Don't be deceived by disingenuous interpretation of the scriptures in regard to ethical matters or anything else. As 1 Corinthians 15.33 states, quite simply, bad company corrupts good morals. So we have one more thing to deal with here. Uh, Paul gives us a tool. He gives us a weapon. You can imagine in your hands you're going to war, right? Um, And he's saying, here's your weapon to use towards sexual sin and covetousness and filthy uh, speech. And he says, instead of those things, right, instead of those things, let there be Thankfulness. Seriously, Paul, you want us to go to battle with the weapon of gratitude? Gratitude? I'll be honest. That line of reasoning bugged me most of this week. I found myself angry at Paul. You know, wanted to tell Paul that's like throwing rocks at a tank. What's the What's the point in this? You know, how would you feel if if you and I got together to grab some coffee and you shared, you know, I've been struggling with pornography, I've tried to stop over and over again, but I just keep messing up. I keep going back to it again and again, and you're looking for help. And I say, okay, here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to focus on being grateful, right? We're good to go. You'd think I was having a stroke. You know, you might tell me, you know, Brian, I don't think you understand the nature of the sin I'm trying to explain to you here. Do you not know what these words mean? Um, Shouldn't we talk about web filters and accountability partners? And yeah, we should. We should talk about those. There is great wisdom in both of those in this battle. But what Paul is doing here is he's going straight to the heart of the issue in a way that we don't even expect someone to do this. Uh, You know, he's going right to my heart, to your heart, to our hearts. It's, it's like in Star Wars, and I've only seen it once, I'm not good with these illustrations. So um, It's a movie, I hope you've seen it. Uh, what we're dealing with here is like the difference between um, fighting battles on the surface of the Death Star, which might have some progress, and the idea of flying right to the center of it and destroying the source of the power so that it all goes out. Um, I think that's how the story goes, correct me if I'm wrong. So try and follow the reasoning here, the way Paul does this Death Star Destruction idea here, is this, that sexual immorality and crude speech and all impurity and covetousness, all those things are are fueled by this deep seated discontentment that you have. Um, With what God has given you. With, With God himself, with his word, with his rules. You know, that's why we rebel against God's commands, because honestly, deep down, we don't trust that they're for our good. We don't. It's like, it's like thinking that the government, you know, the only reason they put up that speed limit sign was so they can give tickets to us. That's a good conspiracy theory, right? No. They, they put that speed limit sign up to keep you safe and to keep others safe from you as you travel down the road in a 4,000-pound machine on wheels. But do you ever find yourself thankful that you can only drive 30 down Anderson never crosses my mind and so here's here's where it is here's where thankfulness and gratitude come into play thankfulness is what you emotionally feel when you believe that your God is for you and not against you that's gratitude when you believe that God is for you Christian do you believe that God is for you Do you believe that he does not withhold anything good from you? I mean, do you really believe that? Do you believe that if if God withholds wealth from you or if he calls you to to, to postpone or to deny your sexual desires that he does so because he loves you and that it's for your good? Do you believe that? Do you you trust that suffering in your life is, is not God being cruel and mean to you? It's a simple question. Do you believe that God is for you? See, when when Eve was in the garden, she believed the serpent when he told her, God has sought to deny something wonderful from you. And it only supported it when she looked at the tree and she delighted in it. And she saw, yeah, that tree is wonderful. I do desire that. Um, You know, she didn't didn't trust the Lord that the command that he had not to eat of that tree was for her good. You can see it would be difficult the more you knew how wonderful that tree was. She didn't believe God was for her, and so she ate. And Adam ate. Um, And and after that, with that sin, they were cast out of the garden. They were cast away from the presence uh, of God. So many terrible things have come into the world as a result of that moment. So listen, pop culture, popular culture, is going to tell you that these rules of God are oppressive. And that's going to sound reasonable. They're only going to seek to rob you of the good pleasures that can be had in life. And that's going to sound reasonable. And that's going to appeal to your heart if you're not focused on the goodness of God. It absolutely will. You know, if we fail to be grateful for the death of Jesus that has set us free from sin, if we fail to be content with the life that God has given us, with the, the wife or the husband that he's given you, or, or even just the gift of singleness at this stage in your life, or maybe your whole life, or the job, or the car, or anything else, when we fail to be grateful for that. You see, gratitude expresses a heart that believes um, God gives us all good things. He really does. But if we decide we're gonna sin anyway, what we're doing is worshiping our desires rather than God. We're saying, God, I love you, I do. But I am so attracted to this person right now that I'm gonna let my desire, that desire, rule my life. That's why it's idolatry. There's no way around it. You know, you're gonna have to dwell on this in your own life, I realize it's not a simple concept, but. But I want us to consider how we put this into practice when we're facing temptation. Say um, you're with your boyfriend, you're with your girlfriend, you're, you're sitting in front of a, a computer screen alone at night. The desire for sin is, is there. What do you do? Well, option one is to just give in and sin, right? Not a good one, but that's option one. Or you, you could believe you know, the, uh, the lie that Satan is telling you that this sin will satisfy you. And also given that that is a lie we've got to understand that or you know you could come back to the goodness of God for you in the gospel could remember that your sins are forgiven you could remember that eternity is greater than any pleasure you might experience right now you know to to trust that God has withheld this temporary pleasure from from me for a long-term pleasure that is far greater for my good and so you know you you know you deny the impulse by by the power of the Spirit in me and turn away with a grateful heart, knowing that if I don't turn away in this moment right now, later when I do turn away, later when I do walk away, there's going to be regrets, there's going to be rightly felt shame, and there is absolutely no joy in that. Gratitude says to temptation, not I can't, but I won't. That's significant. I know this is a far-fetched idea, but say a, a newly married man has a friend from work. Invite him to go out, and we're going to go meet girls tonight. And he could say, you know, quite disappointingly, that sounds amazing. I'd like to go meet girls. Um, but I'm married, so I can't. Uh, or he, he could think about how satisfied he is in the spouse that God has given him, the life that God has given him. And he could say, you know, something like, I've got a wonderful wife. I've got a great life. I'm thankful for her. Uh, I won't go. I don't want to. Church, this is kind of what we're getting at. We are new people, right? We're putting on the new self. We, we have a gracious Heavenly Father, and we can be satisfied in Him. We can be. You might not feel that, but you absolutely can be. We believe that what God says in Hebrews thirteen five 5 is, is absolutely true. There it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if you're a child of God, he will never leave you nor forsake you. That should come as some comfort. Particularly if you see these sins and you think, that's part of my history. Uh, That's part of my story. You've got to remember, if, if you're forgiven in Christ, then stop dwelling on past sin that God has forgotten long ago. Stop carrying that on your shoulders. You know, maybe it's more recently. You know, if you've recently fallen in these sins, let me tell you this, don't run from God. Don't try to hide from God, because God loves you. God is for you, and so run to God, not from God. Run to Him, you know, confessing idolatry, confessing discontentment, you know, resting in His open arms. Run to Him, because you know that you're not saved by faith plus obedience. You know you're not saved by faith plus perfect faithfulness. You're saved by faith alone, and the Lord Jesus Christ alone and so run to him in prayer. Run to him with confession and repentance and seek satisfaction in the Lord who is glorious and who is infinitely satisfying. So I just want to end with one more thing. I want to invert this passage. We, we tend to respond to negative statements very poorly. We don't see what their purpose is sometimes. Um, so let me reverse it so that it's positive statements with the, with the same things. In other words, what we should pursue. <clears throat> it says this, but, but proper sexuality... In all purity and contentment, which is worship, should be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be wise speech and pure joking, which are fitting, and let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who trusts in the Lord, trust the Lord is for them, who is satisfied in the Lord, will receive an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Child of God, your heavenly Father is, is for you. Believe that. Trust him. Let's pray.